You are listening to Rue, a podcast of global Confucianism. Join us as Dr. Ben Song explores the riches of the Rue tradition and its intellectual, philosophical, and spiritual heritage. Dr. Song is a scholar of Ruism, more commonly known as Confucianism, as well as comparative philosophy, religion, and theology. He currently serves Washington College as an assistant professor of philosophy and religion. Here is Dr. Song with today's program. The Life of Confucius. Hello, this is Dr. Bing Song at Washington College. We have spent the previous units to talk about the name, the entering text, and several pre-Confucian exemplary figures of the Rue tradition. Now we finally get to Confucius, which the English name of the Rue tradition, Confucianism, refers to. It was the Jesuit who gave us this name, Confucius, in around the 16th century. When they did so. They tried to pronounce how Confucius was honored by Chinese people at that time. Kong is the surname, and Fuzi means honored master. So Confucius sounds like Kong Fuzi, and it was not the original name of Confucius. The original name of Confucius is Kong Qiu, and he has a style name called Zhongni. Qiu means a hill. Referring to what the forehead of Confucius looked like, Zhong means that Kong Chu is the second son in the family, and Ni refers to the place where Confucius was born, a hill called Ni in the state of Lu, the state that we have discussed as the place where the offspring of the Duke of Zhou were enfeoffed, and thus it preserved many ancient rituals and cultures of Zhou Dynasty. I get into these fair details of Confucius' birthplace and his name because I want to express my general feeling towards Confucius' life. Confucius is such a real finger that his down-to-earth humanity stands very prominently among the leaders or founders of major world philosophies and religions. Firstly, this very human profile of Confucius. Is different from founding fingers in the Abrahamic religious traditions such as Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. From varying scriptures, we read a number of miraculous, nearly or fully divine deeds of these religious founding fingers, such as Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad, which we barely find any resemblance in the case of Confucius. Secondly, the number of historical evidences we can gather about Confucius' life and thought surpasses other legendary thinkers. The reality of whose life we can normally just guess and speculate. For instance, many scholars doubt whether we can know anything sure about the life of the Gautama Buddha or the life of Laozi, the founder of philosophical Taoism. 
However, this down-to-earth human face of Confucius does not mean that his life is merely human, secular, and thus deficient of all transcendent or spiritual commitment. As I will analyze in more details, the concept of mandate of heaven plays a significant role in Confucius' life, and he indeed tried to live a meaningful and powerful human life with a cosmic consciousness towards what humans can and should do within the entire universe. In this sense, the person of Confucius indicates a lifestyle which we can name as this worldly spirituality. And for me, because the lifestyle seems naturally fit into many aspects of human consciousness in modern society, I find it very appealing. The significance of Confucius to the root tradition is that he established the first private school in ancient China and started to systematically study, teach, and propagate ancient wisdom with an ultimate purpose of improving the society where he lived in. In other words, before Confucius, although legendary sages such as Yao Shun and the Duke of Zhou had furnished greater wisdom for later generations to follow, all educational resources were monopolized by the government, and therefore no commoner, which refers to people with no noble pedigree, could become an educated person. However, in the time of Confucius, the central authority of Zhou dynasty was uh, collapsing, and the official school system was uh, crumbling. This situation furnished a historic opportunity for such a highly intelligent and dedicated human being, Confucius, to democratize the educational enterprise so that he could help his society through making education more accessible. This was unprecedented in ancient China, and in this regard, we can compare Confucius to Plato and Aristotle, who opened the earliest schools of liberal arts in ancient Greece. This is also the reason why, comparatively speaking, we can have more historical evidences of Confucius' sayings and deeds since he had a large group of students and followers and his main social activities took place within or in connection to his school. Because of the huge impact of Confucius upon the rule tradition, which he helped to continue and incubate, he was almost universally respected by whomsoever pursued their education in any school system in the context of ancient China. So, without any surprise, Protestant missionaries named the root tradition as Confucianism in the 19th century partly because of the universal respect to Confucius that these missionaries have witnessed among ancient Chinese people. Although, as I explained before, the name Confucianism is a misnomer. Since the last topic to avoid in a course about Confucianism is Confucius, we will use two units to talk about Confucius. One is about his life and another is on his thought. There is no better way to decipher Confucius' life than his own autobiography. My teacher back at Boston, Professor John Brethrom, once told me that this is perhaps the shortest and also the most famous autobiography ever written by a human being. And it reads like this. The master said, quote, at 15, 
I set my mind upon learning, or established my will on learning. At 30, I took my stand in society. At 40, I became free of doubts. At 50, I understood the mandate of heaven. At 60, my ears were attuned to it, or I obeyed the mandate of heaven. And at 70, I could follow my heart's desires without overstepping the bounds of propriety, or without overstepping the due measures. Quote. Here, I will try my best to explain what Confucius looks like at each of these self-described stages of life. But I also highly recommend you to do the required reading and watch the required video so that you can get more details about how scholars have tried to confirm the details of Confucius' life. So let's do it one stage after another. Stage one. At 15, I set my mind upon learning or established my will on learning. Many books on self-care or success share a truism about human life. Unless you want to be successful, you cannot be a successful person. The same goes to Confucius' life. He said he established his will on learning, and after 60 years of ceaseless learning, Confucius died at the age of 73. Confucius became the most learned person in his time. There are several factors to stimulate Confucius' will of learning. Firstly, he was born in a declined noble family. And as the youngest son of a concubine to his father, he definitely harbored a will to recover his family's honor. This will was best represented by one story in his earlier life. It was told by Sima Qian that when Confucius was a teenager, he tried to approach the noble family of Ji Sun, a man that held a great power in the state of Lu. To find the needed connections to strengthen Confucius' own career. However, because Confucius was merely a son of a concubine and hence not noble enough, he was rejected. To his great dismay, Confucius realized that he could not rely upon his pedigree to get a stand in society, and thus he set his mind upon learning so that he can become a successful man through his own endeavor. And hardworking. Secondly, the city where Confucius was raised in was the capital of the state of Lu, where many ancient rituals and cultures were preserved. Since the offspring of the Duke of Zhou were all enfeoffed in the state, however, Confucius was not allowed into official schools, which at that time admitted students exclusively from noble families. Scholars guess that Confucius' single mother, the great woman of Yan Zhengdai, must have played a great role to nurture Confucius' interest in Asian culture. However, we do know that Confucius was mostly self-taught, and he just sought and tried to grasp any opportunity that he could learn from somebody or somewhere certain knowledge of the past of his country and culture. During the process, he also earned his livelihood while doing ordinary jobs, such as being a bookkeeper of a granary and a shepherd. Stage two. At 30, I took my stand in society. Confucius once described part of the curriculum of his teaching as be inspired by poetry, stand on the rituals, and be consummate in music. Hence, when Confucius said he could stand in society when he was around his thirties, 
It means he commanded a sufficient amount of knowledge on the ritual system of the time, so that he can earn his livelihood, raise his family, and thus find a position in the society. In a more concrete term, this means that after at least 15 years of self-learning, Confucius was learned enough to open his school. He taught ancient classics and six arts: ritual, music, archery, charioteering, calligraphy, and arithmetic, to people from all backgrounds, and thus prepared them to get hired by varying governments and noble families. During the process, Confucius could definitely charge his tuition and became economically independent to be a teacher, an independent thinker and a scholar, and to be economically independent because of teaching and thinking. These were all entirely new phenomena in ancient Chinese history, and the accomplishment of Confucius in this regard cannot be underestimated. Because Confucius took education as his major job, there were many verses in the Analects to indicate his wisdom on education. For instance, the following three principles of Confucius' philosophy of education are my favorite. First, learning without a constant teacher, 学无常师 which means you cannot blindly follow any teacher, but instead you need to learn from anyone who may benefit your learning. Second. Teaching without discrimination, 有教无类 which means education should be universally accessible to people of all backgrounds. It is said that a bunch of dry meat can be taken by Confucius as the tuition to accept one student waiting to learn. But Confucius also had some extremely rich students, such as Zi Gong, a merchant coming from the state of Wei. This speaks to the fact that the admission policy of Confucius School was flexible, and as the first school builder in ancient China, Confucius was indeed dedicated to broadening the accessibility of education. Third, a noble-minded person cannot be like a utensil, 君子不器 which means everyone needs to learn broadly to be a good human being at first. And then to be good at a specific career to serve a specific aspect of human society, this is very congenial to the Western tradition of liberal arts, and probably a major reason why I choose to teach at a very historic liberal arts college in the U.S. Stage three. At forty, I became free of doubts. At the age around forty. Confucius gathered much reputation because of his teaching and knowledge. He also started to seek opportunities of serving in government in his home state of Lu and its adjacent state of Qi. One event that marked the maturity of Confucius' knowledge is that the ruler of Qi once asked him about how to govern, and Confucius answered the question in a very concise way: quote, "Let the Lord be a true Lord." The ministers, true ministers; the fathers, true fathers; and the son, true sons.、Quote. Since we already studied the Duke of Zhou, we find that Confucius' saying is a concise restatement of Duke of Zhou's role ethics, which was taken to be the key to all good human life and government. Every human needs to shoulder their duty to fulfill their role in varying human relationships. 
In a word, in the age around 40, Confucius mastered his comprehensive and principled knowledge on human affairs, and started to apply the knowledge to realms of practical human life. In this sense, he described himself as being free of doubts. Stage four. At 50, I understood the mandate of heaven. At the age around 50, there is a major upgrade. Of intensity and change during Confucius' life. Firstly, he got to work in the highest level of the state government of Lu, and broadly engaged himself in economical, diplomatic, and military matters. Because he was so successful as a statesman and increased the interstate influence of Lu, the adjacent state Qi tried to find all means to undermine. Confucius' position and the power of Lu. A cohort of courtesans were sent by Qi to the Duke of Lu, with the result that the Duke indulged himself days and nights to totally abandon his state responsibility. This made Confucius realize that he had no more room to employ his、uh, political talents. He decided to leave his home state and plunged into a journey of self-exile and wandering among states for another 14 years, with the hope that he might find an enlightened ruler to realize his political and social ambition. Secondly, another decisive event for Confucius' life around the age of 50 was that he started to systematically learn the Zhou Book of Change. Zhou Yi. This is originally a book of divination, but because it contains ancient wisdom of human life in a very condensed and comprehensive way, Confucius treated mainly as a wisdom book to help him understand the position of human beings in changing societies and in the entire universe. If Confucius' knowledge before he learned the Zhou Book of Change was comprehensive in the practical sense. That the knowledge could serve concrete teaching and governmental jobs. His understanding of human conditions after he learned the Book of Change was upgraded into an all-encompassing cosmic consciousness. Therefore, this is my understanding about why Confucius said that in his fifty he could understand the mandate of heaven. Firstly, he knew his talent, namely what he was good at. And what he could contribute to society while establishing his own life in the society. Secondly, he knew his limits, namely the practical obstacles that exist in his life to preclude his full flourishing. The dire political situation that his home state was trapped into definitely refer to this limit, which urged Confucius' departure. Finally, he eventually comprehended the mission of his life, so that he would fearlessly exile himself in varying foreign states, so as to try his best to fulfill the ultimate meaning of his life. In a word, under a cosmic consciousness, Confucius was crystal clear of his own talent. Would like to try his best to both acknowledge and overcome the limit of objective conditions, and finally to fight his best to continually fulfill the ultimate mission of his life. Compared to the trope of this term, mandate of heaven in early Zhou Dynasty, 
which was mainly used to legitimize a political regime. Confucius' understanding of the term is definitely more individualistic, more spiritual, and because of this, more relatable to contemporary readers. Stage five. At sixty, my ears were attuned to it, or obeyed the mandate of heaven. The life of self-exile in order to find a supportive and enlightened rulers is not easy. Confucius' life was under serious threat in several occasions. However, at the age around sixty, all these difficulties strengthened Confucius' cosmic consciousness on his mandate of heaven to a further phase, and the strengthened consciousness made him accept whatever may befall him with a total equanimity. For instance, when Huan Tui intended to kill Confucius. Confucius says, quote, "It is Tian Heaven itself that has endowed me with virtue. What need I fear from the likes of Huan Tui?" Quote. More importantly, regardless of those difficulties that either put Confucius in a life-death situation or drove him to seek tirelessly enlightened rulers, eventually of no avail, Confucius was firm on his mission. And would like to do whatsoever ought to be done, regardless of consequences. For instance, when a hermit mocked him to say, "The whole world is as if engulfed in a great flood, and who can change it? Wouldn't it be better to follow men like Earth who avoid the world entirely?" Confucius' answer was that a person cannot flock together with the birds and beasts. If I do not associate the followers of men, then with whom I associate? If the way were realized in the world, then I would not need to change anything.、Quote. Similarly, he also forcefully encouraged his sometimes quite frustrated students in this way.、Quote. It is humans who can enlarge the way, not the way that can enlarge humans.、Quote. Therefore, with a firm belief in his mandate of heaven, Confucius accepted whatever may befall him in the evolving difficult situations of the 14-year self-exile with a total equanimity. In this sense, he can totally attune himself to the mandate of heaven without any doubt or complaint. Final stage at 70. I could follow my heart's desires without overstepping the bounds of propriety, or without overstepping the due measures. Confucius came back to his home state when he was 68. He was dedicated to studying ancient classics and teaching, and meanwhile he was consulted on state affairs by the state while not pursuing any formal role in office. After decades of learning and practicing. Confucius was able to feel completely at ease with himself while still diligently pursuing those noble ideals of his life. So, in the age of fifty, he understood his mandate of heaven. At sixty, he obeyed his mandate of heaven. At seventy, he was his mandate of heaven. United himself completely with his mandate of heaven, without any second of his life to depart from the mandate. 
However, this completely free and easygoing way of life is not without stress and grief. Several of Confucius' best students died before him. His son also died earlier than him. And most importantly, until the end of his life, Confucius still didn't find any enlightened ruler to help him to realize his political ideal. In many of these occasions, Confucius overwhelmed himself with the feeling of sorrow and grief to the effect that even his students were doubting whether his emotions were appropriate. However, Confucius would say, when you need to grieve, grieve in the best and the right way. That's why he could follow his heart without overstepping the appropriate measure. This is exactly the Confucius whom we were familiar with, a down-to-earth, ordinary human with an extraordinary level of cosmic consciousness while never giving up his dream to make the world be better. Thank you for listening to Rue, a podcast of global Confucianism. If you enjoyed today's program, please consider subscribing to this podcast. If you would like to learn more about Ruism, please follow the link to Dr. Song's website included in the show notes. Opening music, Tada, by Siddhartha Corsis. Closing music, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, by Siddhartha Corsis. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to you tuning in again next time.